Right, starting in Judges chapter 2, verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Tinmath Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, and another generation grew up <coughs> who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed, the, followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel to see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in the Can Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines all the Canaanites, the Sidonians and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given their forefathers through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and the Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Thank you, Sam. Um, 
Again, uh, keep your Bibles open. It's a long passage. There's um, unfamiliar names and places and there's a very clear pattern for us to discern from them. And we're going to do that this morning. And if you have your Bible in front of you, not only can you follow along, uh, but hopefully you can keep up uh, and pick up on those details as we work through them. Um, I I, I guess you might have had this same experience um, when you were at school, if you can remember back that far. Um, You know how it is with school subjects. Some school subjects can be really great. You know, everyone loves PE. Um, But some subjects kind of fall in in the middle, don't they? Some subjects can be the best uh, or the worst, depending on the day that you're there. And I think the classic one of these is science. Science can be the best. Science can be the worst. You might turn up to your classroom and see all the books out on the desk and lots of writing on the board and know that you're up for bookwork and copying off the board, maybe a test, lots of reading, boring, the worst. But another day you might turn up to science and all of the workbenches will be covered in Bunsen burners and beakers and all sorts of strange equipment, there'll be chemicals everywhere and you think this is going to be awesome. Well, that's what I thought. It was great. You know, Practo was great. All these fun and dangerous things you could play with. Uh, Look, when I did school, we did experiments all the time. We kept on doing it at uni. Why do we do experiments in science? Uh, Well, we do it to to learn. We do it because we want to test our knowledge of things. We do it because we see as we do those experiments, if you do X, then Y follows. If you do this then this is the result. We see that in all sorts of ways. If you uh, accidentally set fire to the gas outlet, you get a big flame and an angry teacher, X, then Y. Uh, If you add a certain metal salt to an acid, uh, I won't tell you which, you get hydrogen sulphide, which is better known as rotten egg gas, and an evacuated classroom. Again, it wasn't me, it was someone else. Uh, X, then Y. You, You learn these things. That's how science works. Uh, this happens, this is the result. It's predictable, it's based around the idea that things are ordered and that things are repeatable. Cause, then effect. Now, it's not just in the realm of science, is it? Uh, We see this in life, sometimes in things that are not entirely true. You know, we wash our car and then it rains. That is a coincidence, it seems to happen, not quite the same thing. But sometimes we see it in things that are true. If you leave a banana skin in your office on a warm afternoon, then the next morning it will stink like rotten bananas. Don't tell me how I know that. But, but we start to expect that in other things, don't we? We take it from observable and true things, we, we start to expect it in broader ways, uh, cause and effect. If I do good, then good will happen to me. If I do bad, bad will happen to me. And we start to flip that around. I'm, I'm getting good, that means I must have done good. I'm getting bad, that means I must have done bad. And to a degree that plays out in our life. And so we come to expect it in all sorts of things. Which is why when we come to Judges 2, we can get a bit confused. Okay, on one hand, it seems to play out, doesn't it? Bad seems to follow bad. Israel sins and they're punished. And we say, yes, that makes sense. I understand, that's that's right. We know even that God promised that. We read earlier from Judges, uh, from Deuteronomy sorry, 31. This is the promise that God made to his people there. He said, walk in his ways, keep his commands, decrees and laws, then you will live and increase and God, excuse me, God will bless you. And he flipped it around and said, but if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, 
you will certainly be destroyed. And we say, yes, that makes sense. That actually seems fair even. It seems right. And it seems like that's playing out in Judges chapter 2 here until until God does something that's unfair. God does something that's odd. God steps in and intervenes and breaks that cycle. And no longer is it that X is then followed by Y, no longer is it that's cause and effect, but actually what we see is something that's far better. It's less predictable, but it is far, far better. And we're going to explore how that happens this morning as we open up this chapter. Um, as, we, as we started it, you might have realised that what we kind of have here is Judges Intro 2.0. Um, it, it's almost a bit of a sense of deja vu, isn't it? I mean, didn't Joshua died like last week, didn't he? And now he's dying again. Don't worry, it doesn't happen twice. Um, what we're doing is we're rehashing, we're going back over the same ground to an extent. And it's same, same, but different. If you were here last week, you might remember everything was very specific. We had specific groups of people doing specific things in specific places at specific times. Not this week. You, you might have noticed as, as Sam was reading, it's very general, isn't it? We talk about Israel as the nation, not particular parts of them. There's no specific places named. There's no specific enemies named or groups of people or times. And that's because what we're getting here is a pattern, is essentially the key to reading this book and to understanding this book. The, the, the author is saying, this is what's going to happen. I'm just preparing you beforehand. This is what it's going to look like. And here's a hint, it's bad. It's going to get messy. Although it starts well enough, doesn't it? Come with me back to verse 6. We'll just read through to verse 9. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. It starts well, doesn't it? Uh, as Joshua lives, the people continue to obey God. They continue to serve God and are, are very faithful to him, doing as he commanded. That continues to the next generation as well. The elders who are under uh, Joshua, as long as they lived, maybe another 20, 30 years, still the nation stuck to the right path. They stayed on the straight and narrow. They served and were faithful. And then verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. It catches you by surprise, doesn't it? Um, we, we might expect uh, over the next hundred years there was a general decline as people slowly forgot about Yahweh. But, but that's not what happens at all, is it? One generation dies, the next generation grows up and they know nothing of God. Um, let's be clear, it's not that they didn't know about him. The key word here is they didn't know him. They knew all about him. I mean, after all, they'd grown up with their parents in the Israelite religious pattern. They, they knew all the festivals. They'd been through all the, uh, the, the, the practices. They'd been to synagogue, their, their version of church. They knew all about God. But they didn't know him. 
They didn't know him for themselves. They didn't know him personally. In just one generation, that knowledge of God had been lost. And if nothing else, that highlights at least something very important for us today, doesn't it? Uh, And I'm not only talking to parents here, but talking to all of us as a church family. There is a danger in assuming that because our kids know about God that they know him. And it's not the same thing. We can fall into that trap, can't we? Oh, he, he knows all the answers. I mean, Jethro knows the right answer. I mean, every kid knows that answer for Sunday school. But, but he knows the right answer. Or we say, well, at least he's in church. Or things like that. And those things are good things, but what we're being shown here is they're not enough. They're not the thing. Our kids need to know God, know him for themselves. That means they need to see from from us as a church family not just information about him or not just facts, but they need to see a life of knowing him, what, what that life of love looks like, what that life of faith and trust looks like. It means we ought to be asking our kids not just questions about what God has done, but asking questions about where their hearts are at with him. Where are you at with God? Now, at the end of the day, ultimately, yes, the responsibility is with them. Uh, They have to make their own choice. But that's the sort of legacy that we're called to live. To not simply pass on head knowledge, but to challenge and teach their hearts as well. Because what we see following on here is just how dark the consequences were for Israel. Look at verse 11 through 15. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples all around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Uh, We're told they did evil in God's eyes. Probably in their own eyes they were justified. You know, they they might have even rationalised it to themselves. You you can kind of imagine the scene, you know, they've been in the land for a few years, they look at their Canaanite neighbours, who shouldn't have been there but were because of their failings, and they say, he had a great harvest this year. In fact, he had a great harvest last year as well. Maybe I should try praying to Baal too. It seems to work for him. I'll just try it. You know, you you can hear how this might play out. They they, they rationalise it. They say in their own eyes, it's a good thing, it might help us. But what does God say? In his eyes they did evil. And we see that described and elaborated on. They abandoned him, they forsook him, they left off following him and trusting him and obeying him and they turned instead to Baals and Ashtoreths, pagan gods with evil practices of their pagan neighbours. They provoked God. We read later that they prostituted themselves out. It's not just that they were unfaithful to God as if it was something that just happened along the way. It was deliberate. They pursued it. It was repeated. 
that they sought for, for their own gain by going to other gods. And what you expect comes to pass. God is provoked to anger. It's not just a quick rage as if he just flares up all of a sudden, uh, but it's a deep and jealous anger as he sees a people he's loved and, and, and done so much for abandon him. And I think we need to take note of that. The, the language here is, is not a picture, uh, is not a language of a, a God who's detached or a God who's impersonal. Uh, it's a God who is passionate, who is involved. God's not a, a removed bystander or you know, a scientist kind of watching his experiment play out with really no care or no attachment to what's going on. Uh, God's more like a husband here. More like a husband watching his wife carry out an, inf- an affair right in front of him. I mean, except that doesn't even cut it, does it? Because God's far more perfect than any husband and Israel here is far more blatant than any cheating partner has ever been. So what's the result? Well, God hands them over. You can feel the irony, can't you? Israel want the nation's ways? Well, they get them. The nations come and take part in Israel. They want the nation's gods? Well, now they belong to those gods and all of their terrible practices as well. And everywhere they turn, they meet with defeat and destruction and disaster. Verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. (laughs) Where does that come from? (laughs) Okay. I think we kind of lose just how abrupt that is. You know, we, we expect God to step in. We know God's going to step in. We're, we're looking for it. We take it kind of for granted. But just put yourself in the flow of this story. Immerse yourself in, in what's taking place here. This people who are abandoning God, who are being given over, who are, have completely lost him. And then all of a sudden, do you see how abrupt this is? They're, they're heading down this dark path and suddenly God intervenes. We don't hear, you know, the people cried out to God and he in his mercy responded. All of a sudden God just acts. He was against them. He was punishing them and now he's saving them. Now he's rescuing them. Why? Look at the second half of verse 18. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. I mean, their their punishment was so right. It was so just and so deserved. And yet, God still hates to see the people he loves suffer under it. And so he steps in and he breaks the pattern. He breaks the cycle. It's no longer X, then Y. It's no longer disobedient, then punishment. He intervenes. And he sends his judge. Now, we, we get a bit confused by the picture of a judge. We think, you know, bad wig, courtroom. It's not really how the word works here. The judge is a deliverer, a ruler. And what we see most often of all is the judge is a saviour. Don't miss how drastic this is. Everything to this point has been recorded to show us just how unworthy and these people were, how deserving they were of their punishment. Their list was long, their, their, their sentence was just and now mercy, a deliverer, a saviour and a rescuer. 
but verse 17 yet they would not listen to their judges but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. As long as the judge lived, but when the judge died. You know, it's like a classroom at school. You know, when the teacher's there, things, things are relatively orderly, things progress normally. The teacher steps out of the room, Chaos. Anarchy. Israel are no better than year eights. For as soon as their God-given deliverer and rescuer and saviour is gone, they are worse than before. And we're left with this question. We're left hanging. What hope then is there for them? What's this book going to look like by the end? I mean, it's going to get dark, clearly. How can such a people be saved if even these graciously given deliverers can't do it for them? Well, what we really need, what they really need is clear, isn't it? It's a deliverer, it's a judge who's going to change them, who's going to make them different. It's a judge who's going to last, who won't die. But how's that possible? What sort of judge can be like that? Well, it takes actually quite a long time before we find out. Hundreds, even thousands of years. And then finally we read this, Romans 4 verse 25. He, that is Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our uh, justification. Do you you see what that is telling us there? It's telling us that here we have a deliverer who is like none who'd ever come before, like none who's ever been since. We have a deliverer who didn't live to rule but died in order to save. We have a deliverer, a judge, who didn't stay dead so his people again wander and be worse off than before. We have a deliverer who was raised and raised for our justification, that is, our making right with God forever. He's done something that no judge has ever done. A judge could save his people but not change them, but this judge is different. This judge, this deliverer, changes us and makes us right. And he still lives today. Here's how Paul goes on in Romans 8.34. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. See, there's no one who can condemn us anymore. We could quite clearly see the failings of the Israelites, the the, the accusation stuck to them, but not to you. Not to you anymore. Because Jesus, your living judge, your living deliverer, is standing at God's right hand and he is saying, 
it doesn't count. It doesn't stick because I've died for him. He is clean. He is justified. He is forgiven. He is loved. No earthly judge can do that. But Jesus can. For all who put their trust in him, there is rescue, there is change, there is being made right, there is an advocate who stands for you even today. So it would be very tempting for us, wouldn't it, you know, to look at this passage and just kind of point the finger at Israel. I mean, they're pretty stupid, aren't they? <laughs> Terrible distress, finally rescued out of it, worse off than before. What's going on? How unfaithful could they be? And yet the passage says, you're Israel. We're Israel. We're not the first generation who are faithful. We're Israel. We too have God's signs all around us. We have the knowledge of him all before us. We have wonders in our face everywhere we turn. We too have rejected and abandoned him. We too have prostituted ourselves out to whatever comes our way, whatever offers something that, that, that feels, fits our fancy or serves our purpose. We too deserve justice and judgment and punishment because we have provoked God. And yet for we too, he sends a deliverer, a better judge, out of his unprompted sheer love and compassion. God breaks that pattern for you to deliver. And your hope is that he is the same today as he was then. He is still today a God who pities the lost, who shows compassion to the broken and who saves wretches. Your hope is that he's today sent a better judge who lives today, who liberates from death itself, who lives to keep us right and holy and loved. But why did God leave these temptations before his people? I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that. Why, why did God allow this situation to, to actually get to this point? I mean, he was clearly in a position to drive all these nations out, to maybe even prevent Israel from ever having the chance to go in this direction. Why didn't he do it? Well, when we read on, we find out. Look at verse 20 through 23. Uh, I'll read them for you. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Okay, we, we, we're getting an insight here, aren't we? We're kind of rewinding the clock now. Why did God do this? Why did he leave these nations? Well, he did it to test his people. He leaves them around them in order to find out which way will they go. Will they go with the nations or will they go with God? Who, who are they going to trust? Where are they going to turn? 
But we're still talking, you know, a bit advanced in their history, aren't they? Aren't we? We're, we're talking post-Joshua. But why did he leave them pre-Joshua? Let's rewind a bit further because he tells us, chapter three, verse one. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The people he left, verse 4, they were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given their forefathers through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. So we see what God is intending here, don't we? We see what God is wanting to do. Yes, he could have completely wiped the land clean before Israel even got there. Uh, He could have done it because Joshua was his servant, good, faithful, able. He could have finished the job. But he didn't. Not because Joshua had any shortcomings. He didn't do it for the next generation, for their sake. He left these peoples, he left their remnants in order to teach them, to equip them so that they would be strong, so that they would learn to resist, so that they would learn to trust God and live for him and follow him. Would they do it? Well, the proof's in the pudding, isn't it? You know, I I never actually understood that saying. We don't eat pudding ever. What does that actually mean? What actually helped me was when I found out what the full saying is, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Uh, Apparently when that saying was invented, pudding was a kind of sausage, which is maybe not how we would use it today. Uh, Pudding was a sausage. Just mentally note that for next time you ask for it. Um, But just like today, you didn't know if you could trust a sausage. You're not sure what's in it. You suspect it might not be great. So how do you know? How do you know if your pudding sausage is good? Well, you take a bite. You, you test it. You, you bite it. You taste it. You find out. And the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Is it rotten? Is it good? Well, Israel are rotten. They failed their test. They didn't drive out the nations. They intermingled with them. They gave in, in marriage across national lines. They didn't trust God. They didn't obey God and they didn't stay faithful to God. And so their test becomes a punishment. And the nations that were left there to test and to teach them become, as we saw last week, a curse to them and a snare and thorns for their side. They failed the test. But we do get an interesting insight here into God's heart we do get an insight into what he intends for his people because what's he doing? Well, he's leaving these nations here for his people's good. He's leaving them so that they can get strong. He doesn't want them just to waltz into the land and you know, take easy possession of it. Uh, he doesn't want to hand it to them on a platter so that they can just kind of start well and keep going from there. No, God wants to test his people. He, he wants to, to, to push them and to challenge them, not out of cruelty or not out of capriciousness, He wants to do it for their good. He wants to see them come into the land to be strong and be built up and grow. Um, It's a bit like how my parents were with pocket money. I I don't know, maybe yours were the same. 
I never actually got pocket money. Uh, I never actually got an allowance. I was very jealous. My friends just got money for nothing. I mean, how unfair is that? Uh, we had to earn money. And not by doing household chores. They were expected and they were unpaid. We had to do jobs, proper jobs. Jobs that were hard and dirty and jobs around the business. Uh, I didn't like it then. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was awful. But it makes sense now. It makes more sense anyway. If mum and dad just gave us money, yes, it would make us happy, but it wouldn't teach us anything. It might make us ungrateful. It might make us take them for granted. It might teach us to be careless with our money. We wouldn't learn anything from that. No skills or no value, uh, the value of effort, no value of hard work. You do with your kids and your money how you please. But that's what my parents taught us. And that's what God was doing here. He left the nations behind in order to teach his people, to build resilience in them, to to teach them to trust him and to keep coming back to him and to lean on him and be thankful to him. But they failed. The very trials and temptations that were meant to grow them in God took them far from him. And the implied question at the end of the passage is, What about you? What about you? How are you going to respond to the trials and temptations and tests that God allows in your life? Now yes, big big, uh, condition here. There is a big difference. Uh, If you're in Jesus today, then his spirit lives in you, which is something that is completely different to what the Israelites had. Uh, You have a new heart. You are his and secured in him forever. Absolutely. We have to be aware of that. But God still doesn't give you life on a platter, does he? He doesn't remove every obstacle from before you when you come to him. No, instead he still sends, he still allows these things for the same reason. To grow you and equip you and test you and build you. Is that how you see those things? Uh, Undoubtedly you experience them, have experienced them, are experiencing, will experience them. Is that how you see them? That each of your trials, each of your temptations, each of your tests are both an opportunity and a choice for you. The question being, how will you respond? When temptation comes... Do you rationalise it? It won't hurt. Just once, that's okay. I can't be strong all the time. You know, I'm tired, feeling a bit weak. It's been a hard day. That's a choice, isn't it? Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Do you hear what he's saying? There's a way out, always a way out. There is no temptation without one. So stand up and be strong. Give in to the temptation, you gain nothing. Resist it and it's an opportunity for you to grow and to learn and be closer to God. Or what about when trial comes in your life? How do you respond to to hardship and to challenge and difficulty? 
Do, do you find yourself withdrawing? Do you say, why me? Do you find yourself resenting others? You know, they've got it so easy compared to me in my life. Do you find yourself complaining or crabby or maybe even resenting God? Why do you keep doing this to me? Again, it's a choice. Hebrews 12 verse 10 says this, God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Do, do, do you hear what's being put before us? Uh, for, it's for our good, it's for our holiness, it's to train us. It's to build us. You know, if you, you, the first time you go to a gym, if you think, as you, you do exercises for the first time, you think, oh, this is so hard, this is going to challenge me, I don't want this, and refuse it, you're going to gain nothing, are you? But if you accept it, even though difficult, and push through, you'll reap the benefit. God uses our trials to teach us to produce a harvest of righteousness. And how good is it? How good is it that God doesn't just give us life on a platter and just let us go? Can you, can you imagine the troubles we would get ourselves into if God just said, here's life, go for it, it's, it's going to be easy, I'm going to smooth out everything in front of you. How, how naive would we be? How immature? I mean, we live in a difficult world, a confusing world. We have a spiritual enemy. What sort of troubles would we find ourselves in? But be thankful God doesn't do that. It's, it's what David celebrates in Psalm 23, isn't it? We, we sung it earlier. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Yes, God's rod of protection, but also his staff of correction. Difficult and hard as it is. Be thankful God has something great planned for you. He plans to grow you. He plans to make you strong. He plans to teach you obedience and holiness and endurance. He plans to help you resist and stand through whatever life brings your way. He has a job for you. He's calling you to live as his people in this land, to trust his name, to speak to each other in the world, how good he is. And even now through your temptations and through your trials, he is building and equipping you with everything that you need in order to live that out well. See, there will come a day, maybe, maybe you're already there, there will come a day when you can look back and you can see your trials or see temptations that you've passed through even though they might be the, the most difficult or most painful things, and you will see them with great clarity and see how God has used them and what he has achieved through them to make you stronger, to teach you of him. And not just you, how he's used them for others' lives as well. I mean, isn't it amazing? You go through something, you, you, you pass through trial or something terribly difficult and you come out the other side and you see others experiencing very similar things or the same things and your trial, your experience is of great blessing to them to help them as they pass through hardship. It is no accident. God does not waste our sufferings. He uses them he teaches us, he grows us, he equips us through them 
for your good and for his glory. See, it's an incredible thing that we have in this passage, isn't it? Yes, it is dark. Yes, it it describes to us a terrible cycle, a terrible pattern that we're going to see played out in awful ways in coming weeks. But what an insight into God it gives us. God who shows mercy even in the midst of rebellious sinners. God who shows pity even to the subjects of the most just of punishments. God who wants his people strong and confident and able to live well for him. That is who he is. And through Jesus he both secures and grows and teaches us to live for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're just so thankful for what this passage reveals to us about who you are. Because, Lord, it paints for us a wonderful picture of your love and your mercy and your desire for your people. Father, we thank you for your compassion that you save even wretches like us who have rebelled against you, that you send us the deliverer that we need who changes us and lives forever to stand for us. Father, we thank you that not only do you save us and establish us in yourself, but you also teach us and shape us and grow us to live as your people in this world. Father, we thank you that even through our most difficult times, you are working in us and shaping us to be people who live well for you. Father, help us to see our trials and our temptations as, as these good gifts, uh, as things that you work in good ways through. Help us not to refuse them. Help us not to uh, turn from you in them, but instead come back to you and grow in you, knowing that you are equipping us to live well for you and bring glory to your name. In Jesus we pray. Amen.